Well, good morning, Mountain Park. It's good to see you. My name's John. We are doing things just a little bit differently today because we're going to have the opportunity later on to take communion together, celebrate communion. And so normally we might do a little bit more worship up front and... and, and um, but today we're going to do communion and have a little bit more worship at the end. So uh, I'm excited to continue our series in cleaning out the garage. Now, uh, if you have not been here before, I want to tell you a little bit about what that's about. If, you, if you've here, been here for the past few weeks, you've gotten to hear Alan talk about this, that the idea is that we have spiritual junk in our garages, Right, that, that, that just like in our house, you, you can go up to a house and your house can look beautiful on the outside. It can have a manicured lawn and fresh coat of paint. And then in the garage on the back shelf is just some crud that you haven't cleaned out yet. That's true in a practical way. It's also true in a spiritual way. No one ever goes in there, so we just learn to live with a messy garage. You say, that's okay. It's no big deal to have a messy garage. And sometimes we even forget about it until we sell the house and other people get it and they inherit the stuff that we left in our garage or our attic, if that's more appropriate for you. Because a couple months ago, uh, we had some electrical problems in our house. And so we had to have an electrician come in, a couple of electricians, they came in and it turned out there was a bunch of dangerous problems with our wiring. And so they're crawling up in the crawl space above, they're going down the walls and pulling all the wires and doing all this stuff and taking hours and they're doing all this work. And, and I leave and I come back and, and finally they, they're, they're wrapping up and, and I'm talking to the gentleman, who's a great guy, I'm saying thanks. And he said, oh, oh, before I go, um, I assume that you know about the giant paper mache Santa Claus that's in your attic? <laughs> to which I said, no, I don't know anything about the giant paper mache Santa Claus in my attic. And so he goes up into the crossway, he goes right into the crossways, and he begins to pull down this, these feet that just come down first. And then this whole giant paper, the three foot tall, I have a picture of it, it's right here. There he is. Somebody failed to clean out their garage attic and we got to inherit this beauty. He looks like he's got some, some gout there on his feet. Um, but but this, this spiritually we can do this. We can have these giant paper mache Santa Clauses that we just have forgotten about. We just live with up there hanging out. And, and so we've been looking at this, during this series, we've been looking at a verse in 1 John 1, 9 as a reminder of what God wants to do with the stuff in our garage. And, and we've been trying to encourage people to memorize it, so we've got some blanks up there. If you know the verse, if you've, if you've been here for the past few weeks, I actually want to encourage you to just close your eyes and see if you can say it all. But if, you're, if you've been here just a couple times or you're new, see if we can maybe fill in the blanks. So here we go. We'll read it together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will purify our, sorry, forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Right, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's important to note that it says he will purify us from all unrighteousness, that God's desire is not to shame us. It's not confess your sins so that God can say, look how guilty you are so that he can purify us. He actually wants to cleanse us. He doesn't want to stand at the door of your garage and go, look at that mess. 
He wants to come into your garage with you and say, hey, let's, 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 let's pull this stuff out. Let's do this together. Let's, let's shape this up together. So we've been looking at um, what's known as the seven deadly sins, and that's kind of a, something that's been talked about through Christendom, and, and, and that title, The Seven Deadly Sin, makes them seem like this big, gigantic monster that's lurking out there, but in actuality, these sins, they have a way of just sort of sitting in the back of our garage and blending in with the other stuff around there. And that verse, though, it begins with those, those words, if we confess. So if we want to clean out a garage, we have to start with confession. And, and Alan has given us kind of three parts to the, to the pathway of confession. Identify it, identify the sin, the issue, examine it, and then deal with it. Identify it, examine it, deal with it. So um, today we are going to be dealing with the sin of envy, the sin of envy. And, um, and we're going to start just by identifying, okay, what is envy? And I, when I first um, started working on this thought, I thought, man, envy, this is going to be easy. This is going to be simple. Like, it's just wanting what belongs to other people or what wanting what other people have. Like, that's really easy. But as I begin to dive in, I begin to realize envy is incredibly complex. It's an incredibly complex topic. Uh, and so I, I actually uh, went around to talk to people because I realized there's all different kinds of envy. So I went to different people and I said, hey, what, what, what does envy mean to you? What is your experience of envy? And some people said, you know, uh, it's about discontentment for me, that I'm unhappy with my life. I don't, I don't like how much I have to work or, or I don't like the way my house or something I don't like about my life. And then I look at other people and it looks like their life is a whole lot better than mine. And so I envy them. And then for other people, it's actually the exact opposite. They would say, I sit in my house and when I'm by myself with just my stuff, I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty content. It's only when I go out and I see what everybody else has that I get unhappy with my life. And now I begin to envy them. And for some people, it's, it's, it's physical stuff. It's tangible things. But for others, it's a talent or ability. It's, man, this person can sing so amazing. I wish I had that talent. I envy that ability. For others, it's position or prestige. I wish I had the level of influence or impact. I think parents, we deal with this influence piece because when your kids are little, you have all of the influence. You have influence. And then they grow up and they become teenagers. And your influence goes... And you're looking around at the media and, and the, their peers and you're saying, I envy the influence they have on my kids. There's lots of different kinds of envy. And what I discovered too is that not all envy is bad. That wanting something that someone else has isn't inherently wrong in itself. For example, what if, what if you're in crisis? What if you're in a situation where, where you, have, you don't have what you normally have or you're in, you're in a need and you go to someone and you say, hey, can you please share with me? Is that envy? Is that bad envy? Or what if someone just identifies that you're really good at something? That you're really good at, at, at fixing cars or writing an iambic pentameter, if you're Shakespeare. And they come to you and they say, hey, I see you're really good at this. I want that in my life. Would you teach me how to do that? Well, that's not bad. This is what Jesus' disciples did. They actually looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus, you have an amazing prayer life. 
you, you, your prayer life is awesome. We envy your prayer life. Would you teach us how to pray? We want to learn from you. There is a, a manifestation of envy that causes us to humbly come to someone and say, would you please help me? And then another kind, what, what about when someone promises something to you and then gives it to someone else? And, and the jealousy rises up in you and says, wait a minute, that's, that's mine. You said you were going to give that to me. We had an agreement. This is something the Bible refers to as righteous jealousy. And, and, and it's a picture, among other things, one is a picture of a, of a husband and wife who get married and they, they pledge their love to each other and they say, we're going to love one another. And then one spouse goes out and gives their love to someone else. And this spouse, a righteous jealousy, rises up and says, no, that's the love you're supposed to give to me. That, that belongs to me. It doesn't belong to them. This is actually how God feels about us. There's a lot of scriptures that refer to God as a jealous God. And when I was an atheist, these were my favorite scriptures. I loved these scriptures because these are the scriptures that I could go to, 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 to Christians and say, you know, I don't believe in God. I don't think he exists. But if he did, this is why I wouldn't believe in your God. Because your Bible says over and over again that he's a jealous God. Who wants a God that's jealous? But the reality and what I've discovered in my life is that God's jealousy is actually a beautiful, amazing thing. See, when we experience God's love in our life, when we experience his mercy and his grace and his power, and we come to him and we say, God, I, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I want to give you my heart. I want to I follow you all the days of my life. I want to give my life to you. Your love is so awesome. You are so amazing. I want to follow you. And then something comes along and it distracts us. And, and instead of living in God's love, instead of following, we begin to follow this other thing. See, what God doesn't do is he doesn't stand here and say, okay, go ahead. Okay, you go do whatever. God's jealousy says, no, 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 no. They can't love you like I can love you. They can't protect you like I can protect you. They can't give you life like I can give you life. So I'm gonna chase after you. And I'm going to come, and God's jealousy causes him to pursue us and to give us forgiveness and mercy and say, you don't have to keep going that way. You can come back to me. In fact, it is God's mercy that sends Jesus to die for our sins. It is God's jealousy that sends Jesus. In Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, it says, for to us, a child is born. It's this prophecy about Jesus that I know many of you will recognize. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And then it says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And that word for zeal is the Hebrew word kenah, and it means jealousy. If you look that word up in a, in a Hebrew dictionary, in a, a dictionary of Bible words, that first definition will be jealousy. God's passionate zeal for us, his passionate jealousy causes us to come after us and pursue us with his love. But that same word also occurs else, elsewhere with a slightly different connotation in Proverbs 1430, it says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy, kinah, rots the bones. Clearly, that's not the same kind of envy, right? 
But I love this image that there's this type of, of, of envy that's bone rotting envy. This envy that sneaks inside of us, that hides away. It's not necessarily visible, but it sneaks inside to our bones and it begins to eat away at us. It hides, it eats away at the very core of our character and erodes our moral structures. And in the end, it can cause us to do things that we would not ordinarily otherwise do. This bone rotting envy, one of the things I like to call it toxic envy. And so I want to focus us today as we as we examine this, we're gonna examine this. We've talked about identifying envy. Now we're gonna move into the examining, but first I wanna pray. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, we come to you and we open our garages. We, we, Lord, and it's a scary thing sometimes. It's a dangerous thing to say, I'm, I'm willing to allow you to take your flashlight and poke around and to pull out some stuff that, that might be painful or pull out some stuff that I've been unwilling to deal with. But we know that you provide the grace to make it a safe place. And so would you speak to us? Would you lead us and help us to rest in your love today as we hear your words? It's in your name we pray, amen. So if you open your Bibles, we'll start in Exodus 20, verse 17. Gonna examine this idea of what toxic envy is. And in Exodus 20, 17, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. How many of you are struggling with coveting your neighbor's ox? <laughs> donkey, anyone? There's probably some modern equivalencies there for us. But this verse, it actually contains one of the most foundational and controversial truths in, in Scripture that undergirds a lot of Scripture. It's a stark contrast to what you might hear in our culture today. The word for covet is the word hamad, and it literally means desire, a strong desire. And it doesn't necessarily imply positive or negative. In fact, later in Psalm 19.20, it says, the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteousness, righteous. They are more hamad, more precious, more de uh, desirable than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. And so the idea is this desire, these desires that live inside of our heart when you have this heartfelt desire for something. So what this is saying when it says do not covet is you have to deny the desires of your heart. To deny ourselves something our heart genuinely and honestly desires. And can I tell you something? That's not popular. Because there's a, there's, there's a core value, a mantra that is repeated over and over in our society. You've probably heard it in movies and in, in, in read it in books, seen it in song, heard it in songs, all over. And it's three words. It's a three-word mantra. And I'll say the first two words, and I'll bet you can say the last one. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. As long as what you're feeling is genuine, as long as it truly comes from your heart, then just follow it. The fact that it's genuine is enough for you to trust it. And it's amazing how deep this philosophy, this belief has creeped into our society. Uh, it's not uncommon as a pastor to be talking to someone who's struggling with adultery. And they'll say, you know, um, but the truth is, I, I, 
I have a genuine desire for this person. I genuinely like them. I genuinely love them. I don't genuinely desire to be with my spouse anymore. It's, it's just, and, and so I can't change that. It's just what I desire. It's a genuine heartfelt desire, so I need to give into it. Scripture says it does not matter how genuine that feeling is or how true it is. That desire is still wrong. And there are desires in our hearts that come up that we have to be willing to say, you know what? I'm not going to give in to that desire. And we're used to it. We're used to it. We're used to giving in to every impulse, right? When we, wanna, we want an information, we just go, we Google it. When we want food, we go to our refrigerator and eat it, or we go to Zoyo and eat frozen yogurt. Or, or, or when we, when we um, want to express how we feel, we just go onto social media and we post whatever we want. I was online the other day and a friend of mine had a post and they said, I'm gonna preface this by saying, I don't want anyone to respond to anything that I'm saying or to think about it. I just wanna tell you how I feel, right? We're used to just giving in to whatever our impulses are. We assume our heart is trustworthy, but if we're honest, if we're letting God look into our garage, we admit that sometimes our heart leads us astray. But just because we cannot trust our heart does not mean we shouldn't listen to our heart. See, our heart is a lousy general. We don't wanna put it in charge of our lives, but it's a fabulous spy. Our heart can tell us a lot about ourselves and about the situation around us. And so what is our heart trying to tell us when we envy? How do we learn from what it's saying? Well, again, there's a lot of different motivations behind envy. But I think that for, for a lot of times, we, when we're dealing with envy, we think that envy is about wanting something or wanting an ability or wanting something that we don't have, when in fact, I think it's about something different, something else entirely, something that I think may sound a little crazy at first, but I think that when we are struggling with our heart, struggling with our envy, what our heart is trying to tell us is you matter or from first person, I matter. The heart is trying to say, I matter. See, each one of us, we have intrinsic worth, and that worth is directly connected to God, that God created us, all of his own volition, that he said, before, the, before there was anything else, I love you, and you are worth so much that I'm going to create you. And then God reaffirms our worth by sending Jesus to come and die for our sins. And God says, you are so valuable to me, I will give my life up for you. But what happens is we disconnect from that love. We drift away from that reality. We forget about it. We stop believing that we have worth because of who God is and what he's done for us. And then all of a sudden there's a worth vacuum inside of us. And our heart says, well, wait a minute, how do I know I matter? How do I know I'm worth anything? Do I matter? Does anybody see me? Does anybody know me? Does anybody really love me? And so we have to figure out, well, if, how do I construct my worth? How do I measure my worth if we're not going to, if I've unplugged from the source of my God-designed worth, where do I get it from? Well, we start to build it, and we create kind of these scorecards. When I was a kid, um, confession, with my brothers and my dad, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons. 
How many of you know Dungeons and Dragons? Just know, you don't have to confess that you played it, you just know it. Okay, so in Dungeons and Dragons, you get this character sheet, and that character sheet, it has different little attributes on it, right? It's got like strength, dexterity, charisma, wisdom, intelligence, not not that I remember all of them, but they're there. And then you roll the dice and whatever, whatever value you get on that dice, you put it in the little thing. And then that tells you essentially how successful your character is going to be at certain tasks or certain things. It, it determines the outcome of, uh, in a lot of ways of, of what your character will experience on the adventure, whether they live or die or lots of different things. And what happens is we do this. We, we create these profiles and we, we put our own categories on there, whether it's success or, or popularity or Facebook likes or likes or whatever the case may be, we hits, we, we put it up there. And then we fill in our score and we fill in other people's score based on those criteria. The problem with that is that inevitably, life doesn't fit with our store scorecards. Inevitably, something comes along and someone who has a lower score than you gets something that you think you deserve. Inevitably, somebody comes along, someone who you see as less qualified, and they get the job that you interviewed for. Or someone that you're interested in romantically decides that they want to pursue someone else. Someone who, who you think is a jerk. And you're going, why would they do that? And your heart stands up and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, I matter. That, you can't, that's not fair. You you don't deserve that, I deserve that. Toxic envy, I think, is rooted in a deep-seated fear that we don't really matter. And this is the problem with coveting your neighbor's spouse and donkey is because essentially you're asserting your importance over them. You're saying, I deserve that donkey more than you. I deserve that ox more than you. I am more important than you. And you deserve it less. And that impacts us in some pretty powerful ways. We're gonna look at a couple of stories. Start in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter four, uh, starting in verse one. It's the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. And it says, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So here's what happens. Cain comes and Cain says, does all this work and says, I'm bringing this to God. I'm doing this work for you. God, he lays it before the Lord and the Lord said, that's not, that's not quite, you're not quite there yet, man. And then Abel comes along, his brother, and presents it to God and God says, dude, you got it. Well done. That, that pleases me. Has that ever happened to you? If it has, if you've ever been in a situation where you've worked hard on something and been told it's not good enough and someone else presents theirs and they're told it is, you know that there's a complex array of emotions that comes, especially when that person is a relative, by the way. Complex series of emotions, disappointment, hurt, betrayal, frustration, anger that just begin to rise up in us. And Cain says, I want what Abel has. And at this point, what Cain feels is not necessarily bad or good because he has a choice in how he deals with it. He could say, hey, Abel, man, I 
I don't know what you did, but you did it right. Can you teach me? What, what did you do so that your offering was acceptable to God and mine wasn't? He could do that, but he doesn't. Scripture goes on and says, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And that anger, as we find out later, eventually leads Cain to murder his own brother. And the word there that's used for anger actually literally means to burn with fire. Has that ever happened? Someone gets something that you think you deserve and you just start to burn on the inside? It's a slow burning sensation. Something inside of Cain that's burning and all of a sudden uh, the sacrifices don't matter anymore. God's favor doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is God picked Abel over me. And when someone gets picked above us, when someone else gets what we want, we automatically begin to think that they must feel like they're saying they're better than we are. That they, they are more important or they're more valuable than us. And that's what we have to fight against because that's what causes us to want to tear them down or to falsely build ourselves up is that burning sensation that someone else's success makes me less important, less valuable, or less lovable. You know what the simplest solution to Cain's problem is? If his problem is that he wants God to do an offering that earns God favor, his simple solution is to go to God and say, what did I do wrong? Right? The simplest solution, if, 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 if you have work, if, you, if you're a student and you're doing an assignment that doesn't get the grade that you want and somebody else gets a higher grade, the simplest solution is to go and say, what did I do wrong? What, what can I do better? But as far as we know, Cain never considers the possibility that he could do something different. And that's part of what envy does. Envy takes the focus off of what I did wrong and what I may have done what I could have done better, and points the finger at someone else. Sometimes, if we're honest, envy is nothing more than a way to avoid the reality that maybe we didn't deserve what we thought we did, that maybe we can do better. The good news is that's okay. It's okay to admit that. You know, Cain doesn't seek God, but God seeks Cain. In verses six to seven, he says, the Lord says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. While Cain is seething against his brother, God gives him a piece of advice. Just do what's right, man. Just do what's right. When, you're, when we're struggling with envy, when we're burning on the inside, these are the words we need to hear ringing in our ear. Just do what's right. Just, just do what's right. Stop looking at the other person. Stop looking at Abel. You notice God doesn't mention Abel at all. It's not about him. Just do what's right. And this is hard because it may mean that you have to change your scorecard. According to Cain's scorecard, he was fine. He, don't worry, they're getting ready for offering. <laughs> they're not really mad at me. According to... <laughs> It's really scary for me. You think it's weird for you. <laughs> According to Cain's scorecard, he'd done everything right. And, and now he's faced with, with either he ha has to adjust his scorecard and he's not willing to do it. And he, he, God says, hey, change, align your scorecard with mine, but he can't do it. Um, 
Some of you know that I have a background in theater. And, um, and I was, it, it, uh, worked as an actor and a director in theater, film, and television for a number of years before I, I went into ministry. And I worked for a theater company for, for, for several years where they had a group of what's called a resident company of actors or a group of actors that are full-time and, and they do all of the shows. And it was a great Great deal. I loved being there. You developed some real close relationship with some other actors because you're doing a lot of stuff together. And, and so there was this one guy who was a friend of mine who um, we, we, we had a great relationship, great friendship. We'd get together and pray. Um, but then uh, one, one, one time there was this show that we had to audition for. And we had auditioned in the past for shows together, but this time it was a particular show. And there was a main character in the show that we both wanted. And, and during the audition, it got it narrowed down and it narrowed down and it narrowed down until finally it was very obvious that it was him or me in this role. And, and I did this audition and I thought, I nailed this. Like, oh my goodness, I was in the moment. There was people crying. It was awesome. And when he did his part, I could go to sleep. It was so boring. I didn't connect with it at all. Two days later, the cast list went up, and guess who was cast? Not me. And it was amazing how, from that time on, I felt the need when people said, hey, what do you think of this person? I would say, ah, he's okay. And if you had talked to me before that, I would have said, no, he's a great actor. But every time, in fact, I'm telling you this, this today is the first day I've ever actually admitted this. If I had told this story two days ago, that's all I would have said was this guy, he got the role, I was clearly better than him, but this guy, the director liked him better, whatever else, there was no good reason for it. But now, here's the reality. He was just better. That's just how it was. The reality is, as much as I tried to deny it for years and years and years, because it was so hard for me to admit that maybe I wasn't as good as I thought I was, because maybe my worth and my value was wrapped up too much in that. But I can tell you now, the fact is he was just better than me. And sometimes when we're dealing with envy, we just need to look at the other person and say, they're just better than me. And that does not make me less valuable, less lovable, no matter what this world says, no matter what a paycheck says, no matter what Facebook says, in God's eyes, that does not make me one bit less valuable. When you look at who Jesus hang out with, hung out with, he did not come and hang out with the people who rated high on the scorecard of society. I want to jump to the New Testament in Luke chapter 10. The story of Mary and Martha, another familiar story. Story. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. You know what, Mar you know what Martha is saying here? She's saying one of the other big mantras of our society, another three-word phrase that is very common that my kids say all the time. I bet you can complete it. It's not It's not fair. I'm doing all the work and she's sitting there doing nothing. Have you ever felt that way? 
You're cleaning the dishes, doing the chores, and your spouse or your kids are sitting on the couch eating bonbons. Do they still make bonbons? (laughs) Eating whatever snack it is that's there. And you're going, oh my goodness, you haven't earned that yet. Who are you to be sitting there relaxing? I've got my scorecard and you haven't completed your quota yet. Right? You've got this big, you start making a list in your head of all the things you do for your family. And you start making a big list of all the things that they do not do for your family. And you get this scorecard. It's not fair. Is a, whenever you find yourself saying it's not fair, check your heart for envy. And remember, God is not fair. He is loving. And praise the Lord for that. And just ask, am I angry because someone is being loving and gracious? Or do you feel this way because you feel less important? Because here's the thing, if, Martha, if all Martha wants is help around the house, you know what she can do? Hey, uh, Mary, would you mind helping me in the kitchen? Right? If we want help, that's all we have to say. But that's not what Martha does. Martha is angry. She's envious. She begins making that list. And when we start making those lists in our head, we are in danger of having the bone-rotting envy. I love Jesus' response, though. Verse 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I love that. If we were to come to Jesus with all our envy, with all our frustration, with all our bitterness, with all our anger, he would just say to us, Jan, Jan, you are worried and bothered about so many things. You're taking on responsibilities that aren't yours. You're so worried about keeping score that you're missing the game. Stop trying to play God and judge everybody's value. And come sit at my feet. Come be loved by me. Jesus says that Mary's desire to sit and soak in God's love is more valuable than Martha's desire to work for him. Not that that isn't valuable in some way, but Jesus says, hey, this is even more valuable. What if we all agreed that the only thing we really need is Jesus? What if, we, what if we set aside everything else and we said, the only thing I really need to know that I matter, to know that I'm valuable, to know that I have a purpose in my life is that Jesus Christ came and gave his life for me and he loves me deeply, personally, and passionately. What would that look like? Well, I want to give us an opportunity to, to come to Jesus just like Martha did. I think that's Jesus' call is, hey, when you have envy, when you have bitterness, when you have any sin you're struggling with, come to me, come and see me. We're gonna do this through communion. Communion is an opportunity to remember that Jesus loved us enough to die for us. The band's gonna come out and and they're gonna start passing out communion and, and as they do, I want you to just hold that communion. Hold on to that communion and they're gonna play a song and during that song, I just want you to think about Who is your Mary and who is your Cain? Who's the person whose success makes you burn on the inside? 
Who is the person who you stopped praying for because secretly you hope that they start to fail? And bear in mind that both of those stories are family members. Sometimes envy isn't about strangers. The strongest envy is with the people we're close to. Close to. You guys can go ahead and start passing that out. It's easy sometimes to think, God, what do I do with this? God makes a way for us to come to him through something called repentance. And I just want to be really clear that when we come to God with our sin, it's, it's not what we're used to. It's not coming and saying, God, I'm sorry I did that wrong. I'll never do it again. It's not saying, God, I'm sorry. I, 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 I acknowledge that I sin and I promise not to sin. No, it's acknowledging that we can't stop sinning. It's saying, God, I've been relying on myself, on my own impulses to guide me, and I don't want to do that. God, I admit that I am broken and that my self-reliance actually produces sin. So I, I cast all that I am on your grace. I no longer rely on myself. I surrender all that I am to you, and I trust that your love is enough for me. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know you care deeply about each one of us. And as we receive the communion, we hold it in our hands. Lord, I I pray that each one of us has a moment where we can genuinely receive from you your grace and your forgiveness. May this be a genuine time, Lord, where you speak and you remind us of how valuable we are to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.